the hour has come. Wake up. Be roused from your slumber. You've been hibernating long enough. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Lord, we are thankful that your word is eternal. And this morning we place our lives upon the foundation, the bedrock of our faith, which is Christ. And we thank you that the word of God is the Lord Jesus Christ illuminated to us, that Jesus is the word made flesh. And so, Lord, it is written of you in the volume of the book as we open up the scriptures this morning and read from and learn from Romans 13. We're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would be the instructor, the teacher, the comforter, the guide, that we would see Jesus as we study this text, that you would make much of Christ, that you would allow us to see Jesus lifted up and that he would draw men and women to himself. Lord, we thank you for the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the gospel, that we have a crucified king who has risen and who will soon return. So Lord, even as we look ahead at that sure promise, uh, we're anticipating a life lived not in darkness, but after darkness, light. And so Lord, would you allow us to be the bearers of light, those who are dressed in the armor of light, as we just read, that we would be your ambassadors to this very dark, very uh, needy community. Lord, we're thankful for what you're doing here in, in Lakewood Ranch and Bradenton. Today is the first service of West Church and Pastor Brian Kelly. We pray that you'd bless them, Lord, that you'd encourage them. We pray that that church would be faithful to your word, that they would proclaim the gospel, and that you would bless them this morning with their first gathering. We're thankful, Lord, that you are doing a good work in this church and in this community. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to let your Holy Spirit be at work in our lives. So Lord, we lean forward this morning to pay attention to what you would have to say to us. And all who agree this morning said, amen. Well, in our home, and many of your homes, you have the same, there's a hallway where there's a series of marks on the wall where we have, through the years, chronicled the growth, so to speak, of our two children. We now have a 15-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old son. And much to my chagrin, the latest mark on my son is uh, just a bit too high. <laughs> it's actually higher than my height. And yet over the years, as we've tracked their growth and we have their names and the dates written on there, and for several weeks, my daughter kept trying to just inch her way up a little bit and, and put the marks a little bit higher, a little bit higher on her own. The reality is... We have ways to mark our physical maturity, and, and a mark on a wall might be one of those, a pencil mark. But what if we had a way, or is there a way to measure our spiritual growth? In other words, is there a way to look back over time and be able to gauge our spiritual progress, our discipleship, our growth in grace, our growth in our walk with Christ? Is it an automatic assumption that if someone is older, or no, that's not the phrase we use. We use more advanced in years, remember? So is it, is it surmisable that someone who's more advanced in years is automatically more mature or more in progress in their walk with Christ? Or is it more likely that 
In some seasons, we can grow with great rapidity, where we grow very rapidly, but there can be other seasons where though we've grown a bit, we also can become tempted to fall back into the domination of our flesh, and thus the maturity level we're expected to be at is not a reality in our lives. You see, the writer of Hebrews had some scathing remarks to say to his readers along these lines. In Hebrews 5, he says this, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So did you catch what he's saying? He's saying by this time you should be further along in your maturity, in your sanctification, but you're immature. Because why? You still need someone else to teach you. There's an expectation that over time we should be progressing in our walk with Christ. In fact, we will read a little bit later in our service that elders are not to be a recent convert. They're supposed to have been walking with Christ for a little while. And here in Hebrews 5, the, the writer of Hebrews mentions milk and solid food. That was always confusing to me. But if you think about it, we have newborn babies here in the church, and newborn undeveloped babies cannot pull up to the table and feed themselves. They must be nourished by mother's milk. And that mother's milk is produced as a result of the mother herself having nourishment that she's provided for herself. In other words, the mom can feed herself and the milk she gives to her child is very basic, but without it, the child would die. So the writer of Hebrews is suggesting when we learn how to feed ourselves, not just rely on someone else to feed us, we begin to mature. We begin through constant practice to have great discernment and great growth in our spiritual progress. But time doesn't necessarily equal spiritual maturity. Someone who's advanced in their years doesn't automatically equate to those who are mature. Because even here in Hebrews, they're supposed to be teachers at this point, and they're still babies. As we open up the second half of the 13th chapter of Romans, the reason we, I want to start with that is that we see Paul exhorting believers to step up in a few areas in their maturity. So in the context of the greater section, chapter 12, we've been seeing how our personal lives have been shaped by God's grace in view of the mercies of God in Romans 1 through 11. We also saw in chapter 12 how God's grace shapes our lives in this one another covenant community of grace. And then last week in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we learned how God's grace shapes us as we live our lives in submission to governing authorities. If you weren't here last week or you missed last week's sermon, you need to go back and listen to it because we addressed this whole topic of God and government. And this morning, as we continue in our study of Romans 13, we're gonna see how God's grace shapes our lives in relationship with the law and our neighbor, in relationship with our posture in the already not yet, and in relationship to our flesh. So we're gonna be looking at three main ideas from the text. If you're taking note, the title of the sermon is Marks of Maturity, and we're going to see in verses 8 through 10, acceptable debt. We're going to see how we need to be awake for the day in verses 11 and 12, and we'll see what it looks like to be appropriately dressed 
as an armor bearer of light in verses 13 and 14. And what I want us to do this morning is keep in mind where we are each at personally in each of these areas as we consider our own growth chart in Christ. So I want you to think of today as a sort of sanctification survey or a maturity measurement. Okay, that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to evaluate ourselves and not be dismissive. Some of you I know, you're, you're already getting dismissive and going, listen, listen, youngster, I've been a Christian for many, many years, and, and so this section doesn't apply to me. I've already checked this off the chart. Well, listen, no matter how long you've been following Christ, my exhortation to all of us this morning is to invite the Holy Spirit to probe and to convict and to search our hearts in these areas. That Why? That we might bear more fruit for his kingdom and his glory. Amen? So let's start with this first section, acceptable debt. Paul says, owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. Now, some scholars get real triggered about that, and they say, oh, you're never to have any debt. Well, we, we must review the verses right before this to properly understand Paul's flow of thought. So look up with, with, with me at verse 7. In verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed to them, so taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect or honor. So remember from last week, Paul in this section is exhorting believers as citizens to submit to authority, not just because the looming wrath of God externally is enough to cause you to avoid disobedience from the state, but also because of conscience, we have the internal wrath of God that weighs us down when we sin secretly. And so Paul's argument is not, as he adds to this uh, train of thought, his argument is not that you should never go into debt, only that there should be no unpaid debt. So if we finish his thought in verse eight, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So his argument is that there should not be ignored debt. You can make a strong argument from scripture, and that's a study for another time, uh, that we can loan people money, but we're not to charge exorbitant interest. If we receive a loan or we happen to go into debt, we should do that very carefully, and that debt is not to be incurred unless we have the sufficient means to repay it. And so for that reason, we should try to pay our debt back in a timely manner. We should avoid, the Proverbs talk about avoiding co-signing loans as much as possible, or avoid signing a mortgage or a purchase that we don't have the income to uh, support or pay for. In fact, Psalm 37, 21 says it this way, pretty, pretty scathing. It says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. So that's a study for another time, and that is important. But here in verse 8, Paul's using this analogy of a debt obligation to describe how we interact with our neighbor. And so he, notice he instructs us, don't owe anyone anything except the ongoing obligation, if you would, to love each other. In fact, I love how the NIV, I don't, I don't quote from the NIV a lot, but I love how the NIV puts this. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. I like that. Paul has already used this sort of language in Romans. For example, in Romans 1.14, he said, I am indebted. Same idea. I'm indebted to preach the gospel to the unbelieving world. In Romans 8:12, we learn that as Christians, we are indebted to the Holy Spirit to not live according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. And just two verses prior to this, he said, we are indebted to pay the taxes we legally owe to the governing authorities. So in like manner, we have an ongoing debt or obligation. And what is it? It's to love our neighbor. Origen said this, the debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt which we both discharge every day and forever owe. So the only acceptable debt that's never fully satisfied is love. It's loving others. And notice that he doesn't say that we should call up one another and demand payment. No, the emphasis is on us, our own obligation of loving others as though we're paying back a loan perpetually. It's not that we call and say, you owe me some love, brother. No, it's that we are to continually love. Jesus said, remember, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you what? If you love one another. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, I encourage you to do this later. We've talked about this recently. This describes what a covenant community looks like. And it's, a, it's the mark of love. It's a selfless preference and deference toward others. And so I do have some one string guitars I like to play, and one of them is that we don't walk into a church with demands such as, this is what I'm looking for y'all to give me. We're in the South, so I think I can say y'all. I'm looking for y'all to give me this. No, instead we seek a community where we can find people to love, bless, and serve. That book, Rediscover Church, that Lisa mentioned, talks about that. Find a church community where you can fully be known and involved and where you can find people to serve. Great, great emphasis. Now, I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 8, and Paul makes a statement we cannot just skip past quickly. He says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then, if you notice, he references some of the Ten Commandments. He references, do not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Okay, so if you're remembering the Ten Commandments, these are 7, 6, 8, and 10, respectively. But he leaves off five and he leaves off nine. Five is honor your father and mother, and nine is do not bear false witness. Well, Paul mentions a blanket statement when he says, and any other commandment. So ostensibly he's referring to those two other commands. But he says this, these are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're taking note, that is a direct quote of Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on the two greatest commands, love God and love neighbor. So the Mosaic covenant, you could distill it down to love. It's about relationship. It's about loving God by having no other gods before Yahweh, by not taking an idol or fashioning an idol, by not taking his name in vain and remembering to keep his Sabbath day holy. Those are the first four of the Ten Commandments. And those are, if you could argue, those are oriented towards our relationship with God. Love God. But the last six are oriented towards loving neighbor, relationship with neighbor. And that seems to be what Paul is referencing here. We know we can't steal from God. We can't lie to God. We can't kill God. But we can do those things to our neighbor. So if we distilled the law down to one word, we really could distill it down to the word love. If we're loving our neighbors... We don't steal from them. There's no covetousness when we love someone. When we love father and mother, 
then we honor them. We lie to someone, meaning when we do that, we are expressing a lack of love. Love doesn't lie. Love doesn't pursue relationships outside of marriage. And love certainly doesn't selfishly take the life of another. So love is the fulfillment of the law. One person said it this way, just as love fills out the law, so the law defines love. He says, the law is the riverbed and love is the water. If you have no riverbed, but a lot of sentimental water, what you have is a swamp in which a lot of fornication occurs. If you have no water, but a long riverbed, you just have something for the tumbleweed to blow down the length of. So after instructing us to stay indebted to our neighbor in love, Paul exhorts the church in Rome and the universal church by proxy to be roused from our slumber and to live in accordance with the day. So let's look at this second section, awake for the day. He says in verse 11, besides this, so in addition to this, not only are we to have this debt of love towards others, but there's something else we need to do. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, I'd want us to do an exercise for a minute. I want you to circle, if you have a pen, or highlight the word time in verse 11. There's actually uh, two, at least two Greek words for time, chronos and kairos. So when we say, what time is it? We are late for church. When you say time there, you're using the Greek word chronos, and you should recognize that's where we obtain the word chronology from. And so in this instance, when you say, what time is it? We're late for church. By the way, if it's nine and you're asking what time is church, you're already late, okay? You guys are great though, okay? So in this instance, when you say time, what time is it? You mean 9 a.m. or 10.45 a.m. That's what you mean. If instead you were to say, I want to invite you to our fellowship. This is an exciting time for our church. Well, what you don't mean is 9 a.m. is an exciting, although it is, but, but it's not literally 9 a.m., 10.45 is an exciting. What you're speaking there is kairos. You're saying this is a season. This is a period of time. So kairos speaks not of duration, but of an opportunity. Kronos is quantitative and sequential, whereas kairos is qualitative and has less to do with sequence as much as significance. In fact, kairos is used 85 times in the New Testament, and it's chiefly an eschatological term, meaning an end time term that refers to God's timing. So Paul is saying, you know what time it is. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So he doesn't mean, hey, it's Saturday and you're a teenager and it's 11 a.m., it's time to wake up. No, what he means is it's no more There's no more time to waste. We're wasting our life. And so we must be discerning of the time we're living in, the kairos, and thus we must redeem the time, the chronos. See, they go hand in hand. We need to recognize the time we live in and redeem the time we live in. In fact, there's a similar passage in Ephesians 5. Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We can make a logical argument that if we walk in foolishness and don't redeem the time, then we don't understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul's argument to the Romans is the hour has come. Wake up. Be roused from your slumber. You've been hibernating long enough. 
When is it time to wake up? In fact, he says, the time has come. Besides this, you know this. It's time to stop living your life for your own glory, your own comfort, your own ease. It's time to live for his glory. I don't know if you're convicted when you look at your screen time, but if you were to ever take your phone out, I encourage you not to do this because you'll be greatly discouraged, but pull out your phone, look at your screen time if you have that option on your phone. I look back at my screen time and I am, some of you don't have it, that's a blessing. You have the old flip phone, good for you. But I look at the screen time and I wonder, did I redeem the time? This is how many hours I'm spending on my phone. Or maybe if TV's your thing, you look back at your YouTube viewing history or you look back at a, at a year, 2021, and the moments that you may have been spiritually lackadaisical, and you say, you know, I wish I would have understood the time and redeemed the moment. So many hours wasted rather than used for God's glory. One poem says, thy precious time misspent. Redeem each present day thy last esteem. Improve thy talent with due care for the great day thyself prepare." Paul says the hour has come to wake from sleep, to awaken from slumber. And this is in many ways the spiritual alarm clock for the Romans. It's time to stop hitting snooze. It's time to get up. It's time to get dressed. We need a wake-up call. Why? Because Paul says our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So if you've been saved for any length of time, think about this. The hour of glorification is nearer than that first moment of repentance and faith. See, the scripture expresses our salvation. We often think past tense, I was saved. And you're not wrong, but the scripture expresses our salvation in terms that are past, present, and future. In fact, here's some examples. Ephesians 2.8, we know this verse, for by grace you, past tense, have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Yes and amen, past tense. But then we read 1 Corinthians 1.18, which says, For the word of the cross is folly, folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, present tense, it is the power of God. And then we read in Romans 5.9, we've read this previously, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, future tense, from the wrath of God. So the consummation of Christ's kingdom, his imminent return, you could argue our final redemption and glorification, these are all one minute closer on the clock. So in light of that imminency, we need to stop sleeping. In fact, Paul says in verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, I want you to uh, circle that phrase, the night is far gone, some translations get things a little bit more accurately, and I believe the ESV, this phrase, far gone, there's a better way of translating this. It's not wrong, but I want to clarify some things. It would be better translated, the night is coming to an end. It would be better translated that way, because the Greek word for far gone is a word that means to advance, to go forward, to progress. But the idea here, in a negative way, is that the night, the night, the whole period of man's alienation from God has progressed to a final stage and thus it is drawing to a close. Does that make sense? It, or it's coming to an end. So it's not that it's far gone. Man's alienation from God is far gone. 
So, so what's happening here? Well, in view of where we are at today in the story of redemption, we live not in darkness, we live in the day. Remember, John says in 1 John 2, 8, that the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So though Jesus is the light of the world, he's the day spring from on high, he brought the light of revelation and redemption into the world. He's brought us out of darkness into light. Though that's already happened, we, we actually live in a time where these two ages overlap. So unbelievers, you could say, still belong to the old age. They still are in darkness. They're still alienated from the truth. But the day has come. So we are people of light among the night. The reformers had a phrase, post-tenebrous lux, which means after darkness shines the light or after darkness light. And that's what we have in Christ. So Paul's application is for us to cast off the works of darkness. We're, we're out of darkness and we're to be clothed in the armor of light. These are both words that speak of clothing. So we lay aside the clothing of darkness and we're clothed in that which is light. And that's really our third section, this idea of being appropriately dressed. His argument continues in verse 13 when he says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. So we're to be dressed in the day and, the, and thus we go out and walk. We wake up, we dress, we walk appropriately or properly. And then he says six things we're not to be dressed in, we're not to walk in. And so he says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I want to walk us through his flow of thought for a minute on the screen. So here's his flow of thought. First of all, the kingdom of God, a kingdom of light. And when you see light in scripture, that means life, righteousness, and truth. That kingdom of light is here. Well, the present evil age, one of darkness, which means spiritual death, immorality, and ignorance, is coming to an end. Christ's kingdom, thirdly, invades the darkness as we, his ambassadors, flood the nations. So, number four, in light of the imminency of his return, for Christians to be clothed in the deeds of darkness is incompatible. And thus, number five, instead we must be clothed instead with the righteousness of Christ. We'll put those slides uh, on our website if you click on our website and look under sermons. We do that every week, so you can have those to follow. So Paul's argument is let's walk properly in the daytime. And then he lists six vile sins, which these are not exhaustive. So if you find one that you're sinning and you go, well, that's not on the list, so that's daytime. No, you, this is not exhaustive. It's representative. Okay, these are symptoms of someone who's made provision for their flesh. These all stem from a self-will of someone who seeks after their own pleasure. So we're going to do these in couplets, three sets of two. First, he says orgies and drunkenness. This describes the revelry which a band of friends would participate in. They'd come alongside a victor on the night of his victory, and they would carouse in the streets or it's a reference to the devotees of Bacchus, the god of wine. And they would go through the streets in riotous procession, in, in unrestrained carousing, intentional habitual intoxication. Okay, these words, orgies and drunkenness, are mentioned three times in the New Testament, and two of those times they're found side by side. So they, they in many ways, go together. We know it's not proper 
for believers who are in the light to walk in this sort of darkness. It's not a sin for Christians to drink, but we're not to become intoxicated. Christians, in other words, are not to be under the influence of anything, Ephesians 5 says, except for the Holy Spirit. And so I won't die on that hill saying Christians can never have a glass of wine or a beer. I'm not, that's, the scripture doesn't communicate that. But we're not to get drunk on wine. We're not to be intoxicated under the influence of it. And, and so clearly, we're, we're, if we were to be involved in orgies and drunkenness, that's not fitting. That's not proper. Well, secondly, he mentions sexual immorality and sensuality. Now, that's not the Greek word porneia, which is often used in the New Testament to describe the junk drawer of sexual sin. Here, that first phrase, sexual immorality, is sexual promiscuity, uh, or literally a bed to lie down in and invite illicit sex into. In fact, the second word, sensuality, describes a licentiousness or a shameless excess with no restraint. One scholar said that second word, sensuality, is the ugliest word in the Greek language. That it, it indicates an absence of any restraint. It, it, it indicates unbridled lust, just sensual dress, sensual behavior. In fact, even parading perversion. We see that in the world today, don't we? The world will promote polyamory, friends with benefits, premarital promiscuity, same-sex attraction, sexual liberation, that well has and continues to run dry. But Christians today in the world who live celibate, committed lives in a marriage relationship before God, they are ridiculed. We are considered old-fashioned, prudish, and bound. Yet when we zoom out, who's truly free? In fact, next week, we are going to learn more about sexuality from a biblical perspective. Why? Because in Canada, as I mentioned last week, the C4 bill has just been passed and our Canadian brothers and sisters uh, no longer legally, according to the government, can proclaim the gospel. They can't read Romans without uh, being threatened with some sort of punishment. And so these two words go together and it's not proper. It's, it's not fitting for us as believers. Well, then the third set of words, quarreling and jealousy. Or you could say strife, contention, disputing, boiling over with strong resentment towards someone else. Now, someone who has allowed bickering and petty disagreements to unleash their bitterness, their rivalry, their dissension, their struggle for superiority, is someone who might say, well, that's not as sinful as the first two sets of sins. Those first two are vile. There's nothing wrong with my absolute bitterness towards another person. At least I'm not committing sexual immorality. But see, these six sins are all listed in Galatians 5. When Paul says, someone who lives this way will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. All except for the word bed, but it's implied when Paul talks about impurity. So these are not fitting. It's not fitting for believers to be quarreling, to be jealous, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. This is, there is a time to wear appropriate clothing. There's a time to wear the right dress. And Paul says, it's time to wake up from our slumber to be dressed in the day. You guys have all been in that situation where you showed up to an event wearing the wrong attire. Maybe you were invited to a wedding and they said, it's formal. And you showed up, Florida man, with a t-shirt and shorts. Maybe that was you. And you realize very quickly, uh-oh, it's always better to overdress than underdress. You can always remove the tie. And so maybe that's happened to you. 
Dressing ourselves in darkness is not fitting. It's not appropriate for the believer. We live in a day where we look with great anticipation for the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's time to, it's time to wake up and walk in the daytime, remove the grave clothes of death, debauchery, and darkness, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that last sentence, verse 14. He says, but here's the solution to this. Don't just not get dressed in darkness and stand there naked. No, he says, but put on, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Spurgeon said it this way, the rags of sin must come off if we put on the robe of Christ. There must be a taking away of the love of sin. There must be a renouncing of the practices and habits of sin or else man cannot be a Christian. It will be an idle attempt to try and wear religion as a sort of celestial overall over the top of old sin. So it's not, I'm wearing sin and now I'll dress myself with Christ. No, we must put off the darkness. So if it's alcohol abuse, stop making provision for that sin in your budget. Stop frequenting the brewery or the liquor store. If it's lust, we make no provision for the flesh. We put blocker software on our devices. We break off a relationship that leads to temptation. We take every sinful thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And yes, if it's quarreling and jealousy, we make no provision for the flesh. So we stop entertaining those evil thoughts toward another, and instead we pray for them. We believe the best about them. We seek their good. And as hard as it is, we forgive them even if they never acknowledge what they did wrong to us. You see, all of these have to do with love of self, these sins. Love of self rather than a love for others. These all have to do with a mortification of sin. We put off the flesh. We put it to death by choking its supply. And, and these all have to do with a deep abiding in Christ. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ, no longer desiring the things of the flesh, but desiring an intimacy with our Lord. So how do we mark our spiritual maturity? Well, we look at how we're denying self. How am I lovingly deferring to and preferring others? Where am I at in slaying my own sin? Where am I at in dressing myself in the righteousness of Christ? These are marks that we can measure our maturity by. And each one of us, no matter how long we've been a believer, these are all things that apply to each one of us. In fact, as we close and move into our Vision Sunday, I have three questions for you, three questions for me. Number one, in what ways am I actively loving my neighbor as myself? Not in some blanket overall way like, I just need to love people more. Now, I want you to think of one or two people who are perhaps the hardest to love. And the question is, in what ways are you actively loving them? J.C. Ryle says, love should be the silver thread that runs through all your conduct. So may the Holy Spirit bring clarity and conviction in this area of our lives. This is the one acceptable debt that continues to love others. Well, secondly, another question to consider, in what ways am I actively casting off the works of darkness? We all stumble in many ways, but what does make no provision for the flesh? What does that mean for you today? John MacArthur says, wisdom numbers the days, sees the limited time, and buys the opportunity. Don't be foolish. Shun opportunities for evil, but seize 
opportunities for good. What might those opportunities be for you as you're continuing to grow in your faith today? In what ways are you actively casting off the works of darkness? And finally, number three, in what ways am I actively putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? We could use the Sermon on the Mount as a gauge. We could use the fruit of the Spirit as a gauge. So it's not appropriate anymore. I hear people do this all the time. It's not okay for us to say, hey, that's who I am, deal with it. No, the believer should always say, yes, for a variety of factors, I often respond this way to situations. But by the grace of God, I desire to be more like Jesus in this area. So it's not deal with it, that's my personality. Deal with it, sorry, that's the way I am. Here's my personality profile. Here's my Enneagram, goodness. No, we, we say, by the grace of God, I'm trying to grow in this area. So though I do often respond that way, I also have the flesh. So forgive me, help me to grow in this area. As we close, these last two verses, verses 13 and 14, were used by God to cause one of the most important conversions in all of church history. You may have heard him as St. Augustine or Augustine is how I pronounce it. The publishers of Christian History Magazine argue that after Jesus and Paul, Augustine is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. Benjamin Warfield argued that through his writings, quote, Augustine entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force, not merely created an epic in the history of the church, but determined the course of its history in the West up to the present day. It's a very important figure in church history. It was late August in the year 386. Augustine was around 32 years old. And he was at that moment, in that particular moment, stung by his bondage to lust as he looked around at others who were free and holy in Christ. And here's what he says, his own words. He says, there was a small garden attached to the house where I lodged. I found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt the fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. He says, I was beside myself with madness. I was frantic, overcome with violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair. I hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. In his confessions, he goes on to say, I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this very moment? Well, in the midst of this, you could say grieving over his sin, his weeping, according to church history, at that moment, Augustine heard the voice of a child in the area, singing out repetitively, take it and read, take it and read. Well, he says in his confessions, at this I looked up thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like take it and read, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up telling myself this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. And so as the story goes, Augustine picked up his book of Paul's letters. He flipped open its pages and his eyes rested here on Romans 13, 13 and 14. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here's what he says. He says, I'll put it on the screen. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. You see, Augustine saw one who surpassed the fleeting desires of this world or his flesh, one who was sweeter than any earthly treasure or any pleasure could ever promise or provide. So this morning, may we do the same. May we delight ourselves in the Lord. May we seek first his kingdom. May we put off the deeds of darkness, knowing that it's after darkness, light. May we surrender our lives for his glory and our good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll move into a time of Vision Sunday. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for what we have in Christ. We ask, Lord, now that you would allow these things in our hearts to be made evident. Would your Holy Spirit search us and bring conviction to our hearts? There's areas of growth that we are still stagnant in. We're like on a treadmill. Lord, would you forgive us for these these habitual sins, these sins that we continue to fall into, the sin that easily entangles? Lord, would you help us by faith to reckon the old man dead, to know that we are forgiven, that we are free, that we'd walk in newness of life because we have been brought from darkness into light, from death into life. Lord, would you be at work in our personal lives, spiritually and corporately, as we live in a community of darkness, as we love neighbor and we owe this obligation to another. Lord, show us these areas that we can grow in. Convict us by your spirit. And Lord, allow us to grow today. We love you. We thank you. And now we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we consider where we are at as a fellowship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.